0: The very essence of being in higher education communicates uh, a level of discomfort with risk that would make accountants blush, right? I mean, these these are people who like stability, like order, like their traditions, and think that, you know, the way things have been is the way they should be. And that doesn't work quite frankly. I mean, the world has changed and, you know, it's got to be something different than to be one of the top 40 schools that keep telling everyone they're a top 20 school, right? I mean, it isn't just about educating who you perceive to be the best and the brightest. It's about rolling up your sleeves and going to war for people who have no warriors of their own.
1: Welcome to Season 2 of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading-edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short-term and in the years to come are immense, and yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher ed. And we speak with higher ed's most creative and visionary leaders. I'm joined for this episode by Dr. Michael Sorrell, who serves as president of Paul Quinn College in Dallas, Texas. The list of accomplishments during President Sorrell's 13-year tenure is both long and highly impressive. And indeed, he's one of the most decorated college presidents in America as a result of his extraordinary leadership of Paul Quinn College. We will include the full bio in our show notes so as to leave as much time as possible for this conversation that I have been very much looking forward to. So let me start by welcoming, welcoming you, Michael, to the Ingenious You community. Well, thank you. It is
0: wonderful to be here and I appreciate the invitation very much.
2: Well, we like to start our conversations by finding out something about the professional journey of our interviewees. And in your case, I have read that you describe your pathway to the Paul Quinn College presidency as unconventional. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Well,
0: one could argue that I had career ADD, right? That um, (laughs) I started out my career with the expectations of being a corporate, I'm sorry, a civil rights attorney. Um, I went to law Mm -hmm. school to do that. And I wound up going to law school And um, never became a civil rights attorney, became a corporate securities attorney, which is probably about as far from being a civil rights attorney as you can be. Um, What I attribute that to, though, is that I went and got a master's in public policy before law school. And I worked for a year in between graduate school and law school. And I did Community Reinvestment Act work in the state of North Carolina. So my job was to travel around the state and negotiate agreements between banks and community development corporations. And what it taught me was that civil rights were no longer gonna be achieved in the courts. They were gonna be achieved in the economic development realm, right? That if you could help people provide for themselves and their families, that that might be the greatest contribution to civil rights that you could make. And so, you know, by this point, though, I'm too far into law school, you know, knowing I'm going to law school. And I I couldn't really figure out what was it that I could do as a lawyer that was going to allow me to accomplish much of what I wanted to accomplish. And what I came to understand was that Uh, corporate securities was gonna give me an understanding of business, but that I wasn't gonna be a lawyer for very long. Um, And that, you know, I just needed something that gave me a solid foundation in business. So I went from, I joined a big law firm in Dallas, uh, did corporate securities work for uh, three years. Then I applied for a White House fellowship where I made it to the national finals, but wasn't ultimately selected but did get a job in the White House. This was the Clinton White House, where I was um, the special assistant to the executive director of the President's Initiative on Race. And I did that for a little over a year. Then I came back to Dallas and joined a boutique law firm, which effectively represented the business interests of wealthy Texas families. Uh, I tell people all the time, it was an amazing job. It was an apprenticeship to power. It taught me how things really get done. Um, then from there, I joined a crisis manager from an international, uh, international consulting firm that did public affairs work, and my specialty was crisis management. Um, and so I did that and did some sports stuff uh, as a part of my practice there. Uh, then I went out and opened up my own shop where half the business did high-level public affairs work. The other half of the business did sports stuff. One of my clients uh, was a two partners who owned a real estate development firm. So I acted as sort of the outside CEO of that company. Um, and then they tried to buy an NBA franchise, which I worked with them on. If we'd been successful, I would have had a small ownership stake in the company. And I would have uh, been president of the franchise. And literally while I was doing that, I got a phone call to become the president at Paul Quinn.
2: Hmm. Boy, and those are all the those, building blocks. Those are,
0: those <laughs> are <laughs> some serious building blocks.
2: Exactly. Well, and you know, you are now, I again I read the longest serving president in the 148-year history of Paul Quinn, but when you first assumed the job, is it true that Paul Quinn was struggling mightily uh, and and that you accepted the role on a 90-day contingency basis while the board... Is That's that, all is true. That all I mean,
0: true? I, the school had been determined to have 18 to 24 months left to exist if it did not make significant changes. And most people did not assume that the school was capable of making those types of changes. And... I um, you know, I was on my way to be president of the Memphis Grizzlies. So, you know, <laughs> 90 days, we had submitted our bid to David Stern and the NBA, and that was about the amount of time it was gonna take for them to determine whether or not they were gonna sell us the team. And, you know, I um I mean I I thought that was a fair trade-off. But what's interesting is I never behaved like an interim. I mean, I came in on day one making decisions that, you know, I would have made if I had intended to be the full time president.
2: Mm. And I, I want to come back to that in a minute. But I'm curious, what uh, did you have a moment in those ninety days where you said to yourself, "You know, I think this little school does have a future." I mean, what what was it that gave you uh, the inclination to become the so-
0: president? So. Here's the thing. I am um I am a man who is the product of a praying mother and a praying grandmother. Right. Not that my father and grandfather didn't pray, they did, but my mother and grandmother were very much of a lay you on the altar duo. And as such, I'm a person of deep faith. I cannot recite five Bible passages to you, right? Like that's not Like, I'm not one of those guys that's going to say, oh, well, you know, in Luke chapter five, like, I'm not that guy. Right. But I'm a man of profound faith. And I believe that, you know, the Lord guides me, protects me and all of that. And so I am when I got to the campus on that first day and it was a mess. We had 15 abandoned buildings, Um, you know, things were the buildings that were operational, weren't in great shape. And I, um, I was really, you know, felt this odd sense of peace. Which, I, you know, I don't know really how to explain it, but it was, it was as if I had gotten to the place I was supposed to be. And I've been blessed, right? Like, I mean, I have done really interesting, cool things. I mean, I've, I've been one of the executives on an Olympic bid committee, Uh, You know, like you said, I've worked in the White House. I've represented NBA draft picks. I've been to the draft in the green room. I mean, I've helped negotiate stadiums being built. I mean, I, I really can't complain at the types of opportunities I've had, but they've always felt as if I was on my way someplace else and that they were parts of my story, parts of my journey. And what's interesting is, I take the job at Paul Quinn, and I go to church. Um, you know, the Sunday I think it was after I had taken the job, and Pastor, is also one of my really close friends, says, "We're going to preach this summer about callings." And I'm like, "Cool, I'm preach about callings because my calling is to go get rich in Memphis, <laughs> right? Like, so I'm not worried about it. his sermons on callings because I got my own plan for my calling." And, um, what's amazing about this is that he first Sunday is like, you know, recognizing your calling next Sunday is don't run from your calling. The next Sunday is something like, you know, your calling is following you. I mean, it was just, he was talking, he was talking to, to me, me, right? Like, you know, I started, I was like, wow, is it me or is it getting hot in the church? You know what I mean? It was just, and, um it just became obvious. It just became obvious that this is what I was supposed to do.
2: Well, in one of your first decisions that uh, I think is, is quite fascinating had to do with terminating Paul Quinn's football program now and you're an athlete so you you come into this role and one of your first decisions is to convert the football field and and eliminate football right into a state-of-the-art we over me farm where students can work and from which food is donated to the surrounding community I I mean in retrospect you read about this and you think wow what a brilliant move but at the time what what possessed you to do this and where where the idea so
0: I, so the first thing is to separate the two acts apart, right? Because they weren't, like we didn't terminate the football team thinking we would start a farm, right? But he, here's how it all, all came about. I knew we were going to terminate the football program when I came in because we couldn't afford it. And that was one of the recommendations that had been made. And the question was by Boston Consulting Group, which had done this study on the school. The problem was that Folks at the school in the administration didn't want to do that. Um, and so they, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, people wanted to hold on to this football team that we could not afford. And we weren't even good at it, right? I mean, we didn't have the resources to invest to become really good at football. And football is an expensive sport. People romanticize, oh, you'll make all this money from it. No, you don't. There are literally a handful of institutions that really make money in football. They typically use it to help with male enrollment. Um, But so we couldn't afford it. And then also, you know, I resent the, the implication that the only way out of poverty for Black men is using their body. You know, I mean, like,
1: you
0: know, I mean, I'm not slaves anymore, right? I mean, like, your, your body is absolutely amazing. Being an athlete and, you know, I know people were sort of like, well, you were a college basketball player. How did you feel this way? I was like, yeah, absolutely. I was a college basketball player. I was a good college basketball player. But I used my – like, I loved sports, right? I always knew that my true gifts – well, on the intellectual side of the counter. And so, you know, this notion that black men can only get out of poverty through sports is a fallacy and it's ridiculous. And, you know, so we challenged a lot of paradigms with this. And so we terminated the football program, people lose their minds. Oh my God you're killing people's dreams and you're doing this and you're doing that. And, you know, I can be a bit of a smart ass, honestly, um, you know, and I'm like, look, man, <laughs> you're like a five foot 10 offensive tackle. I didn't kill your dreams. Your gene pool killed your dreams. Right. Like, I mean, it's which in hindsight was an incredibly callous thing to say. Right. <laughs> like, you know, and I, I had to do some maturing myself in the role. Um, of presidency, and that, you know, it, it's stressful. Like every day I went home, you know, with this incredibly heavy responsibility that I'm president of a school that has survived Reconstruction, survived the Great Depression, survived Jim Crow, but might not survive my leadership. And, you know, I think mm. many of us mm. would like to believe that we would be our truest, best selves every day, but in in all candor, no, you wouldn't, because there would be days where it was just too much. And you would you would say some things that you would come to regret, right? Um, but we, we terminate the football program and not terribly long after that, I'm in discussions with a bank that, about restructuring, providing us resources to restructure some debt. And these people from this bank come back to me and want me to believe that they've done an evaluation of our campus and had an appraisal and that our campus is worthless. And I'm sitting there looking at these people and I'm just, just, you know, like, this is incredible. You want me to believe that land that is 145 acres owned free and clear, of any encumbrances from the bank, from a bank, that sits 10 minutes off of a major highway from downtown Dallas, the ninth largest city in the country, is worthless. I was like, you must think I'm an idiot. And it really made me angry. And so, sort of at that point, I was just like, you know what, we're gonna show you what worthless really is. And I didn't know what I was going to do that, you know, but just knew that it was mad and we weren't going to, we weren't going to let them define our reality. And so um, fast forward a little bit, and it's fall 20, 2009. And it's, a, it's our worst fall um, of my presidency, Like, knock on wood because I don't want any more like that one. We had, in the two years I had been president, we were involved in a nasty accreditation fight, which I inherited, but it caused us to lose 400 students. So we went from 550 to 150. Um, And it was hard, right? I mean, like, it was just hard. And I come back from lunch and I get a note that I have a phone call from someone named Trammell Crow. But I didn't know anyone named Trammell Crow. I knew the company, you know, but I didn't know Trammell. And... I thought it was a prank. I did. I thought somebody was, you know, joking, and so I I call them back, and it turns out it really is Trammell. and we go to lunch and we hit it off. But he is the son of the real estate magnate who built the company called Trammell Crow, which is one of the larger real estate developers mm-hmm. in the world, and Trammell is his mm-hmm. oldest son who really sort of turned his back on the family business. Like he did it for a while, you know, went to Yale, was really sort of groomed for it and just decided that he wanted a different kind of life. And, um, you know, is now the owner and operator, of the largest Earth Day in the world and has become one of the leading advocates for um, sustainability in the world. He's just an extraordinary man. And Tremel and I hit it off at lunch. And I had gone to dinner with the president of SMU, which is a four-year college here in Dallas at the time. And, you know, because I was going to dinner and going to visits with different colleges around the country, just trying to gain ideas and develop networks because I did you know, it's my first job in higher education, first job in education period, actually. And so, one of the people I went to dinner with, the president of SMU, Gerald Turner, he, I said I asked him for some advice about fundraising, and he said, "When you're with people of means, ask them for something." He said, "Get them in a the habit of thinking they should support your institution." I was like, "Okay." <laughs> so I'm with travel. and you know we're a food <laughs> desert. The closest we were closer to the city's garbage dump than we were a grocery store, and I um, I had been trying for two years to get people to give us a grocery store in that community and no one would do so. Um, and the, really the final end told us the people in that neighborhood didn't look like their customers, right? Which means exactly what you mm-hmm. think it means, right? That their customers weren't poor black and Brown people and they didn't want customers like that. And so, um, You know, I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm here. We're hitting it off. I'm going to ask for a grocery store. Now, I had no idea how to run a grocery store. If he had said yes to the grocery store, I I mean, who knows how that would have turned out. But I'm sitting there with him. I was like, you know, Trammell, the people in our neighborhood really need a grocery store. And Trammell sidesteps me beautifully, right? And he says, you know what I'm really passionate about? I'm really passionate about community gardens. And he starts talking about community gardens. Now, between me and you, I had never put the word community and garden together in a sentence before in my life. But it has become very apparent when the conversation takes this turn that we're not getting a grocery store. And so, in an effort not to go home empty handed, (laughs) You know, I come back with, you know, Trammell, I've recently become fascinated by community gardens myself, right? Which is true, like literally two minutes before when he mentioned it, when I became fascinated by it. (laughs) And um, he asked, he said, well, do you have some place on campus where we could put a community garden? I said, yes, we can put it on the football field. And he says, can we do that? I was like, I'm the president. We can do whatever we want to do, right? (laughs) Just sort of laughing. And that's how it started. (laughs)
2: If we learned anything from the rapid deep dive into online learning that happened this spring at our college campuses around the world, it is this. High quality, effective remote learning requires a lot more than just the technology. If you want to create rich and robust remote learning experiences, it starts with understanding how people learn and how to design learning environments and how best to use technological innovation to bring about these kinds of experiences. Institutions of all types and sizes are now looking for digital learning professionals who know how to use learning and curricular design principles, technological tools and innovation and analytics to create robust and rich learning experiences for their students. This is the future of learning and the future is now. The Bay Path University newly launched Master of Science in Learning Design and Technology was created for just this purpose. The degree prepares professionals for what Inside Higher Ed recently called Higher Ed's hottest career field. In addition to learning about all of the breakthroughs in this new teaching and learning field, you will also gain hands-on experience designing innovative learning projects for real-time college classes and faculty. Upon graduation, you'll be highly marketable and ready to join this exciting new career field. The program is entirely online and can be completed in less than two years. For more information, visit the Baypath University website at baypath.edu ldt. Applications are now being accepted for the October start. If you want to design the future of learning, take the next step. Visit our website today, baypath.edu ldt. you have been quoted as saying, there was no path forward for us simply doing what other schools did, because they were doing it longer and better. That wasn't going to work for us. We weren't that type of institution. We didn't have those type of resources. Our way forward was going to have to be something different. And then you go on to say, if we were going to demand our place in higher ed, how would we break down the doors? We were gonna to have to be less of a college and more of a movement. So what, what does that mean to be more of a movement than a college and how has that played out over your um, years well, as president?
0: I think it's played out really well. <laughs> Witness the fact that you and I are talking, right? I mean, <laughs> you're not talking to me because, you know, we're sending yeah. graduates to Rhodes Scholars programs yet, right? Uh, we're speaking because we've been successful right. creating a movement uh, and our movement is to really push the boundaries of what's possible to challenge people to turn their institutions outward and address the needs of the communities they serve. Because that isn't what people in higher education like to do. People in higher education aren't typically gunslingers, right? They're not the folks who you think about as being entrepreneurial or risk averse. Uh, The very essence of being in higher education communicates uh, a level of discomfort with risk that would make accountants blush, right? I mean, these are <clears throat> these are people who like stability, like order, like their traditions, and think that, you know, the way things have been is the way they should be. And that doesn't work, quite frankly. I mean, the world has changed. And, you know, it's got to be something different than to be one of the top 40 schools that keep telling everyone they're a top 20 school, right? I mean, it isn't just about educating who you perceive to be the best and the brightest. It's about rolling up your sleeves and going to war for people who have no warriors of their own. It's about looking them in the face and saying, you shouldn't be stuck in poverty your whole life saying, no, your family cycle of being uh, poorly educated and under-resourced and being neglected, all that is over. It stops now because we're going to fight for you until you can fight for yourself. And we accept that you may never come to our school and you may never have a child to come to our school, but that doesn't mean that we have the ability not to do the right thing. And that's what we've done. And that's what we continue to do. And we solve the problems that people care about, that are most important to their lives. What, your community's in a food desert? We'll show you how to get out of the food desert. Um, Oh, you are the site of a toxic waste dump? You know what? We will bring that to America's attention. Um, I mean, we just... We look at it differently. We're not going to apologize for caring about the plights of other people. And we don't understand other colleges and universities who have so many more resources than we do. How they back down, how they don't engage, I'll never understand that. I I just, I don't. And really, to be honest with you, I don't want to understand it.
2: You have pursued a different route to institutional accreditation as well you know, thinking of talking about things that set you apart. Um, And I know you mentioned that you inherited uh, quite a challenge with the regional. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming it was the regional accrediting body uh, when you first stepped into the role. Uh, Can you tell us a little something about uh, your decision to go a different way in terms of accreditation? We,
0: um, a month and a half, two months into my presidential tenure, we were notified that we were being put on probation by SACS. And I I didn't understand a whole lot about accreditation when I arrived for lots of reasons. I mean, one, no one talked about accreditation at Duke and Oberlin. I couldn't have even told you if they were accredited because it didn't matter. They were great schools. (laughs) And I didn't need an accreditor to tell me that we weren't good enough. I knew that. Right. Um, We, we did a great job of producing some roses who grew from the concrete but we shouldn't have like that shouldn't have been people's reality we should have been better and you know honestly it, it just you know it, like there wasn't going to, it wasn't going to work because the creditors were looking at us through you know a, a set of lenses that was never going to allow them to see us with any real value because we have been down too long. They, they had been lied to, they had been deceived. I mean, you know, look, I'm not saying that they didn't have help getting to their conclusion, but to the extent that you have a system that doesn't allow people to do the, make the changes that we've made. That's a problem. That's a problem because you've artificially created barriers the people's success. And so, you know, again, we weren't gonna be, we weren't gonna be able to just do the things that everybody else had done on the accreditation front. We needed a partner that was going to give us flexibility, that was going to understand that we were entrepreneurial, that it didn't mean that we didn't have respect for customs and academic rigor. Quite the opposite. We we fully embrace academic rigor, but we also think that you have to make room for the little guy, for the band of souls who are doing the improbable things. That's not what they provided, and so you know we um we went a different route. And we found a national accreditor that is very rigorous, but just a little more understanding about entrepreneurial success stories. We, we would never have become who we are today if we were still regionally accredited. It would not have been possible.
2: You know, and you, you wonder uh, how many other schools out there, the little schools um, that have their own unique missions to pursue uh, have that opportunity to go a different way. So I, I appreciate your, your no, sharing. No, but you know, the, the other thing I will tell you, regard.
0: Melissa, not um, to cut you off, is that, um, you know, part of why we were able to do the things that we've done is because I wasn't shopping for my next job. So higher education is very unusual. I've never been in a profession where people openly talk about their next opportunities. I mean, in business, in the law firms, if you were talking to say, no, 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 I can't work on that merger because it might not be good for me when I'm looking for my next opportunity. (laughs) Like That conversation would guarantee you you're looking for your next opportunity would start immediately, right? And higher education, that's not how it is. Mm -hmm. You know, the assumption is that you're gonna keep climbing and that you're gonna move from place to place and get to bigger schools and better opportunities because bigger is always better. And that's not true. And, you know, I didn't make a single decision worried about how this would impact my next opportunity. I made it because they were the right things to do. And I think, you know, that has allowed us a measure of success that we would never have had.
2: Well, that's great advice for emerging higher ed leaders. As you as you may know, we have a doctoral program in higher ed uh, at at BayPath, and I have the privilege of teaching a lot of emerging leaders, and they listen to this podcast. And so, I'm wondering if you have other advice from your experience as president that you uh, could share with them and with others listening in. Anything you wish you had known uh, when you first stepped. Um into the role?
0: So, yes, so there's lots of things. Um, I have spent my entire life as the beneficiary of privilege. Um, My parents ran a highly successful restaurant business. I grew up with the best of everything. I went to the very best private schools. Um, I then went to great colleges and graduate schools and worked in A-list places. So I would never been on the other side of the table, right? Under-resourced, um, no national reputation, things of that. The way in which I was treated and the school was treated by people from the, you know, those A-list places um, and not all of them, right? Because there were many of them that were amazing. Honestly, it wasn't even the A-list places that were terrible to us. It was the places that had A-list attitudes, right? <laughs> not A-list credentials. Um, like, people were ridiculous. They were ridiculous. Um, and to the people who were wonderful, like, I mean, you know, my alma mater's were great. Duke and Penn and Oven, they were fantastic. Babson has been extraordinary. Um, well, it's just been just, I mean, you know, here's danger you run when you start naming people, you leave people out and then they feel, but like, you know, so I just made that critical mistake. Like <laughs> SMU was wonderful to us. Uh, like there were lots of places that were wonderful to us, but there were a lot of people who were jerks, who wanted us to feel the full weight of our, of the failures that came before us that didn't allow for the possibility that we would get this right. Um, so I, I think in higher education, people should really spend less time looking down their noses at folks and maybe more time understanding that there's an opportunity for all of us to help each other, that we're better if we do that. Um, and I think I think also, um, I wish I had known, wish I had an appreciation for how difficult it is to turn something around. I did not. I did not. Um, Mm. But I'm I'm glad that, I'm glad that I know now um, Or how difficult it is to turn something around in this space uh, because we can't afford the, we don't have the money to buy ourselves a brand new
2: name. And in, in some ways, it's probably good you didn't know that at the outset. I've, I've had other turnaround leaders say to me that had they known what they now know, they're not so sure they would have uh, gone forward and or been forced to have to, to really dig down so deeply. Your trajectory and the Paul Quinn story is one of just incredible creativity. Um, and leveraging of partnerships and and assets, and you know, in fact i I read that you recently uh, received a grant of a million dollars from StraTA uh, for your network uh, of urban work colleges mm-hmm. that you recently partnered with the Minerva Project to launch your new urban scholars program. So it seems like you have been really effective and creative at leveraging partnerships. To uh, to create your pathway forward, which is, you know, when you don't have all the resources in your own, in your own, uh, within the, your own four walls, you have to be more creative um, and rely on others, you do. don't
0: you? You do. Um, you, I mean, I always tell people we were unencumbered by history of success. Right? Like, I mean, we just, you know, we mm-hmm. had to figure it out. <laughs> and, um that, that I think was really important. Um, I mean, I, mm. I, I think there's a blessing in being down um, because you get to throw everything at the problem and, you know, you, people often want to say we can't do this and we can't do that or we've always done it this way. Or we've always done it that way. Well, you know, that, that's okay, but <laughs> you know, it 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 doesn't really um doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of people, and I just um you know I'm gonna be honest, I I, I think the the I think there's a special moment in time when you get the opportunity to really just allow yourself to be the most creative. And that doesn't often happen. Um, you know, it, it's we're oftentimes so afraid of what are we gonna lose? What will people think? Um, and, and really when you invest in that type of mindset, you've already lost. You've already lost. And you never get to tap into that side of yourself. You know, Babson has this principle of entrepreneurial thought and entrepreneurial action. And I believe in that, you know, um, Mm -hmm. what the blessing for me that Paul Quinn has been is it has allowed me to just turn my creative juices loose. And it, it turns out I'm creative. Right? I, I never thought of myself as creative growing up, in part because I thought that creativity meant that you were artistic. You know, that you could paint, or you could right. draw, or you could sing, or and I can do any of those things. Right? Like I'm a terrible singer. Never gonna be known as a painter. Um, and you know, my stick figures need help. So that I didn't fall in that category. So I, I didn't know. And so it turns out, I am creative. Um, but my canvas is life. And it's different. And I'm thankful for that. Yeah.
2: Boy, and what a, what a wonderful realization. Uh, at this point in your life and in your your professional uh trajectory, so we're almost out of time here i want um I do have a couple of final questions first uh I'm curious what's next for Paul Quinn? So where is your creativity going to turn next do well, you uh do you have anything we here? um you know we a took a different
0: approach than anybody data? else did during the uh coronavirus crisis. Um, We knew it was going to be bad. We knew it was going to be disruptive in part because I had a career in crisis management. So, you know, I had the ability to recognize these things, but also because I read this book called The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis, where it talked about how the Trump administration was dismantling, you know, everything and how we were at our weakest point as a society, as a country. Um, And so I thought, I was like, this is ripe for a disaster. I thought the disaster was going to be foreign policy related. I didn't realize it was going to be a global pandemic. Um, So when we saw it coming, you know, we just said, well, look, what if we just remade the institution? What if we attacked all of our underperforming areas? What if we just gave the students a different school?" I said, because what if we have until the fall of 2021 before people come back to school. We So we just decided yeah. to remake the school. Yeah, so sure. we built the first two new buildings in 40 years on the campus. The students will come back mm-hmm. to that. We struck partnerships with KIPP Charter School Network and we're opening up a, a KIPP High School is moving to our campus mm-hmm. uh, for the fall. Um, then we have partnered with the Independent School oh. District, DISD, and we're We're gonna add an International Baccalaureate Academy sixth through 12th grade, that starts in the fall. We have the first ever Mm. graduate degrees. They will start uh, some point next year. We also have new majors uh, that we're doing. And it's it's just, you know, we're doing so much, people will come back and there's gonna be a brand new sign in front of the college, right? Like, I mean, so we just, we we decided to blow everything up.
2: You have made good use of a crisis as a crisis uh, expert would know how to do. Here's my final question, Michael. And this is a question we ask everybody who comes on uh Ingenious. And that is, I'm asking you to take out your crystal ball and tell us what you think is next for higher ed. Uh, and in your opinion, what needs to be on the radar sure. of every college um, and university leader right now?
0: So the future? I don't think you can put the genie back in the bottle, right? Um, By the time everything goes back to quote unquote normal, people will be, have been disavowed of this idea that you cannot deliver quality instruction virtually. So I think people are going to have to come to grips with that, right? That you can do more with less, that you can be more efficient, that you can actually Mm -hmm. structure an educational experience to the needs of your students, not to your own traditional way of doing things. So I think people are going to have to come to grips with that. Um, And I think they should. I think, you know, I've said this before. Higher education has to be less in love with their traditions and more in love with their students. So hopefully what's up next is a version of higher ed where they actually love their students.
2: I'm Melissa Moore Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Ingenious You is a production of Celloph, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu/celloph for information about our professional development opportunities for higher ed professionals, including our blog and our leading edge thinking in higher education monthly webinar series. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please review and rate it wherever you listen to your podcast and do share Ingenious Hue you with your friends and colleagues so that they too can join our community. In next week's episode, we speak with Dr. Jay Lemons, president of the premier higher education search firm Academic Search and long-serving college president. Jay and his team of search consultants are in the trenches, helping colleges and universities find the right leaders for their open positions. He has a pretty good sense about what institutions are looking for right now when they set out to hire a dean, a provost, or a president. Listen in to hear his wise counsel on how best to prepare yourself for a career change, how to navigate the search process, including what to avoid, and how to discern whether a presidency should be in your future. Be sure to subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so that you do not miss out on this episode. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.